Chapter 5 of The Calico Cat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Calico Cat by Charles Minor Thompson. Chapter 5. The day of the assembling of the grand jury for the September term of the Adams County Court finally dawned. How Mr. Peasley had looked forward to that day. How often he had pictured the scene, the bustle about the courthouse, the agreeable crowd of black-coated lawyers with their clever talk, their good stories, the grave judge, and the still graver side judges, the greetings and handshakings amid much joking and laughter, the county gossip among the grand jurors in the informal moments before they filed into the courtroom to be sworn and to receive the judge's charge, himself, finally, in his best black coat and cherished beaver hat, there in the midst of it, important, weighty, respected, a public man. He had cherished the vision of himself, walking up the village street on that first morning, a dignitary, returning the cordial and admiring salutes of his village friends. He had seen himself later in the jury room, shrewdly leading the reluctant witness delivering weighty opinions on the bearing of testimony, and making all respect him as a marvel of conservatism, dignity, and wisdom. This was to be one of the most important and pleasurable days of his life, the rung in a ladder of preferment which had reached as high as the state house dome. And when that day came, it rained, steadily, gloomily, fiercely rained. Solomon was not allowed to wear his best clothes, when peering out of the window, he hopefully said, he guessed maybe it was going to clear. His wife invited him tartly to wait till it did. She insisted that he put on his everyday clothes, and, thus arrayed, and without meeting a single villager to realize the importance of his errand, he waded up to the courthouse, the pelting rain rattling on his old umbrella, the fierce wind almost wrenching it inside out. There was, of course, no parade on the courthouse steps for the benefit of a wandering village, as there would have been had the day been fine. Instead, the men, steaming with wet, stood about uncomfortably in the corridors, muddy with the mud from their feet, wet with the drip from their umbrellas. The air in the courthouse was close, and everyone felt uncomfortable and depressed. Mr. Peasley, having greeted three or four men whom he knew, found himself jammed into a corner behind four or five jurors who were strangers to him, but he was too disheartened to try to scrape acquaintances with them. He felt lonely and helpless. He looked enviously over to the other end of the corridor, where Fred Farnsworth, Eben Sampson, and Albion Small were standing together. In contrast with the others, these men were laughing. Albion was considerable of a joker, Mr. Peasley reflected gloomily. Then, old Abijah Keith stormed in. His high, shrill voice began immediately to utter his unfavorable opinion of everything and everybody. Well, if he ain't here again, exclaimed in disgust Hiram Hopkins, one of the men in front of Solomon, cantankerest old lummox in the whole state, just lots on upsetting things. Abijah, he snorted. Can't Abijah, I call him. Mr. Peasley shrank back into his corner nervously. He knew this old tyrant and dreaded him. 
Not much was done that first day. The clerk swore them, the judge charged them, and appointed the sensible, steady Sampson foreman. Then they retired to the jury room, a big, desolate place, wherein was a long, ink-spattered table surrounded by wooden armchairs and spittoons. The grand jurors seated themselves and were solemnly silent, while John Page, the state's attorney, began the dull task of presenting cases. Mr. Peaslee found that he had nothing brilliant to say. As a matter of fact, his own troubles were making him see everything yellow. The jurymen did not seem to him as agreeable a lot as he had expected, and as for Page, he irritated Solomon beyond measure. Page was an able young man and a good lawyer, and was entitled to the position which he had attained so young but the son of a man of rather exceptional means, he had been educated at a city college, and had a sophistication which Solomon viewed with deep suspicion. Moreover, he discarded the garb which Mr. Peaslee regarded as sacred. He was not in black. Instead, he wore a light gray business suit, his collar was very knowing in cut, and his cravat of dark blue was caught with a gold pin city-fied smart aleck was mr peaslee's characterization to tell the truth he mistrusted the man's ability and was afraid of him if that fellow knew mr peaslee felt that it would go hard with him generally page was popular solomon had of course been painfully awake to every hint and intimidation in regard to jim's case he had seen jake hibbard that carry-on crow of the law loafing about the corridors and the sight had made him shiver. He had next heard that Jim's case would be quickly called, probably on the next day, news producing a complex emotion, the elements of which he could not distinguish. Furthermore, a remark or so which he overheard indicated that the out-of-town men were inclined to take a harsh view of the matter, and reflecting on all those things, he paddled home through the depressing wet. And the next day, it rained. More and more perturbed as the climax approached, Mr. Peaslee took his place in the jury room and sat there with unhearing ears. He sat and thought and delivered battle with his conscience, which was growing painfully vigorous and aggressive. But after all, perhaps they would not find a true bill, and then Jim would go free and he could breathe again. Mr. Peaslee clung to the hope and hugged it. It was the one thing which gave him courage gentlemen of the grand jury suddenly he heard page saying the next case for you to consider is that of james edward aged fifteen of elmington charged with assault with intent to kill upon one peter lamoury also of elmington and as he proceeded to read the complaint which in spite of the monotonous rapidity with which he rattled it off scared mr peaslee badly with its solemn sounding legal phraseology gentlemen said page laying down the paper there was no eye-witness to the actual assault and only three people have any personal knowledge of the event mr edwards the defendant's father the accused himself and the complainant mr lamoury his counsel tells me is in no condition to appear but i have here lifting a paper his affidavit properly executed giving his version of the matter the boy's father, however, is at hand. Probably the jury would like to question him. 
"'It seems to me,' said Mr. Sampson, "'that Mr. Edwards would be pretty apt to know the rights of it, "'if he's willing to talk. "'I guess we'd better hear him.' "'The state's attorney stepped to the door. "'This way, please,' he called, "'and Mr. Edwards entered the room. "'Farnsworth and Peasley both studied the man's face closely, "'although for very different reasons, "'and both found it sternly uncompromising.' "'Please take a chair, Mr. Edwards,' said Page, and, in a swift glance, rapidly estimated the man. "'Here's someone who won't lie,' he thought, impressed. "'Now,' he resumed, "'will you kindly tell the members of the grand jury what you know of the case?' Mr. Edwards cleared his throat painfully. Determined as he was to let his rebellious boy take whatever punishment his mistaken course might bring, he now began to wish that the punishment would be light. His confidence that Jim needed only to be pushed a little to confess was somewhat shaken, and the charge was really serious. He felt a desire to explain, to palliate, to minimize. Gentlemen, he said, my boy's always been a good boy. I can't believe that he meant to hurt Lamory or anyone else. It must have been some accident. Facts, please, said Page crisply. Mr. Peaslee caught his breath indignantly. He had been entirely in sympathy with Mr. Edwards' soft mode of approaching his story. Page seemed to him unfeeling. I will answer any questions, said Mr. Edwards, stiffening. Did you hear any shot fired? began Page. Yes. Where were you? I was asleep in the room above the gyms. Was Jim in his room? I suppose so. You suppose so? Don't you know? No, I don't know. But to the best of your knowledge and belief, he was there? Yes. And the shot waked you? Yes. What did you do on hearing the shot? I jumped to the window. Tell us what you saw, please. I saw a man fall in the orchard and hurried out to see if he was hurt, but he was gone when I got there. Then what? I went to speak to Jim. He was in his room then, immediately after the shot? Yes. Ha! Ah, and when you spoke to him, did he admit firing the shot? No. Did he deny it? Yes. Where was his gun? In the rack over the mantel. "'In the rack, over the mantel,' repeated Page, slowly glancing at the jurors. "'Did you examine it?' "'Yes.' "'What was its condition? Did it show that it had been fired?' "'No, it was clean.' "'It was clean,' repeated Page. "'I understand that it was a double-barreled, muzzle-loading shotgun. Were there any rags about?' Yes. Where were they? One was in the ashes of the fireplace. Look as if someone had tried to hide it? Yes, reluctantly. If it was that sort of gun, there must have been a shot pouch and powder flask. Where were they? In the drawer where Jim keeps them. Everything looked then as if no shot had been fired? Yes. Was there anyone besides yourself and your son in the house? No. Your housekeeper? She had stepped out. 
to the best of your knowledge then there was no one about to fire the shot except your son no that will do said paige with an accent of finality that is he added with the air of one who observes a courteous form unless some of the grand jurors wish to ask a question there were various things which were new to mr peaslee in this testimony he had supposed that jim had been picked as the guilty person by a process of mere exclusion he had had no idea that the case against him was so strong how had the boy got to the room so soon after he himself had left and why had he gone there and why why had he cleaned the shotgun the grand jury must believe in his guilt and when the case came to trial what could jim say to clear himself it was going to be hard hard with the boy mr peaslee's mouth grew dry his palms moist he moved uneasily in his chair once or twice he felt sure that the next instant he would find himself on his feet but the minutes passed and he was still seated and farnsworth anxious for the sake of his betrothed miss ware to help jim was nonplussed there were two possible explanations of jim's cleaning the gun if he did clean it the first that jim was protecting himself the second that he was shielding someone else but the second theory seemed quite untenable farnsworth had made some cautious but well-directed inquiries about mr edwards and had satisfied himself that the rumors about his smuggling were nothing but malicious gossip there was not a man of greater honesty in the state the boy must have done the shooting miss ware would have to give up still he would hazard a question mr edwards he said lamoury worked for you once didn't he yes you quarreled didn't you i discharged him for intemperance there was no bad blood lamoury was angry i believe farnsworth stopped there was nothing to be gained by this course of questioning in the way of clearing jim of course later the point that lamoury had a grudge against the family might have importance although he could not see just how someone else surely heard that gunshot it was incredible that the neighborhood should be so deserted if only there were another witness the other jurors had no questions they were to tell the truth a little impatient it was near the dinner hour and they were hungry the case seemed perfectly plain to them it was not likely they argued that the boy's father could be mistaken you may go said page to mr edwards i don't see he began when the witness had left the room any need for our going further into this case whatever we may think of the animus of the complainant i take it that was what you wished to bring out mr farnsworth there seems to be no question but that the boy fired the shot the presumption seems strong also that he intended to hit were there any accident or good excuse the boy could of course have no motive not to tell it i suggest that a true bill be found at once and that we proceed to more important matters i want to remind you that we have a great deal of work before us well gentlemen said sampson i guess we're pretty much of a mind about this if no one has any objections i guess we'll call it a vote he looked round as we're all agreed he began just a moment sampson suddenly exclaimed farnsworth it had just then flashed over him that mr peaslee 
the kind Mr. Peaslee, who gave Jim knives and harmonicas, was next-door neighbor to the Edwardses. If he had been at home when the shot was fired, he must have heard it, and he might have seen some significant thing which questioning might bring out. Of course, if Peaslee had seen anything, he would have spoken, but he might have overlooked the importance of some fact or another. "'Just a moment, Samson,' he said, and put up his hand. Then he swung sharply in his chair and put the question, "'Peasley, where were you when that shot was fired?' End of chapter 5